Um, what are you responsible for? And I think everyone needs to have that sense of not just personal um, independence, whereas, you know, I'm an American, I can behave however I like um, within my rights, um, and, and start thinking in terms of, I am a member of a giant, unique experiment, uh, you know, unique in the history of the world, uh, of an intelligent species that really conquered the environment. Um, and, and now um, the environment's pushing back. And so how do we as a society adapt to that and understand that each of us has an important place to play, or play, important uh, part to play in that? Because we can win this. This is not a fight we have to lose. Well, hello there, folks, and I hope you are keeping well, keeping your distance and washing those hands. Welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this is a special episode focused on supporting and championing you during this strange, quite critical and ever-changing public health crisis. I'll be brief in today's introduction. The next few special episodes of the podcast will break away from the normal regularity as we capture, produce and air some relevant content to the COVID-19 crisis. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Phil Skiba, Director of Sports Medicine for the Advocate Aurora Medical Group in Chicago, one of the largest sports medicine hospitals in the United States. And Phil is one of the sharpest people I know, a true polymath. I talk to him about the current crisis, his observations, his advice for us about the general health, staying physically fit and training, what should we be doing, and more broadly, our responsibilities to ourselves, each other, and why and how this situation arose and what this might mean. Welcome, Phil. Um, first off, straight off the bat, uh, how are you? Okay, so far. <laughs> so, oh, okay, that has an anticipatory element to it. Um, and so let's, let's dive straight into your specialist topic. I would normally have uh, various uh, polite, um, interested, somewhat innocuous introductory questions, but I'm, I'm keen to get into your specialist topic of, of human health. You're, you, you've got an expertise in training athletes all the way from from your, your grassroots that will be coming into your clinic all the way through to Elliot Kipchoge and the recent Breaking 2 uh, project. You're, you're a director of one of the largest sports medicine colleges uh, in the world. Uh, right, uh, where are we at, Phil? What's, what's the situation? Uh, what are your observations? Uh, can you give us some insights that can help us? Um, honestly, as a society, we're in big trouble. Um, we, uh, for too long, have uh, pretended that uh, the COVID-19 crisis was someone else's problem. And that as long as it wasn't infect, uh, you know, affecting us in our hometown, it, it was all right. What we can see now is this kind of steady march across the globe. Um, and, and, you know, not, not simply a matter of people getting ill, but whole societies being disrupted, people told to stay home, the Olympics being put off for a year. Um, and so we live it, we're leaving this very unique time where to remain safe, we have to remain isolated. We can't spend a whole lot of time outdoors or with other people at the gym, for example. Um, 
But by the same token, being healthy requires some human interaction and exercise. Um, and so we're finding ourselves at this very strange nexus. And that's that's an interesting observation from it, it presenting some potential problems in the future if we're on our own and if we're isolated, perhaps through the summer for the northern hemisphere, which might be fine, but 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 ultimately that's to avoid a much bigger crisis. Uh, so there's an offset, there's a compromise I'm hearing there. Well, the thing is this, COVID-19 is not going to wipe out society. Um, you know, th this is going to kill a sizable number of people, but it will not be the end of the world. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is that so many people will become ill in such a short period of time that it will cause the wholesale collapse of the healthcare system. And then you've got a much larger problem because if I wipe out all your hospitals with COVID, then what do we do with the, you know, even larger number of people who suffer cardiovascular disease every year or who suffer cancer? And if they can't get the treatment that they need, now you've taken a problem of, you know, we have maybe several million deaths from COVID-19. And now that's going to be multiplied exponentially because of all the other downstream effects of people who can't get care for their regular health problems, which didn't just magically go away. So are you talking there about uh, either or that the infection of healthcare workers or infection of the environments, uh, or are you talking about an overwhelm that means that everything is focused on trying to cope with COVID cases? Correct. If my hospital, like I, I, my hospital is, is a large tertiary care center and a level one trauma center, we've got about 700 beds. Um, if every one of those beds is filled with somebody with COVID-19 who requires, re you know, respiratory support and the like, what do I do when you or I show up in the emergency room having a, an acute heart attack or a stroke or something like that? Um, there aren't endless resources. And so part of the problem of COVID-19 is that medicine, uh, both in the UK and in the US and worldwide, has always been balanced on this knife edge of how much in terms of resources do we want to give, you know, do we want to, do we want to um, put towards that particular issue versus the rest of, of society and the rest of what needs to go on in, in a functioning country. Um, and I think what we're discovering now is that that balance point, um, you know, we picked the wrong one because right now, you know, in the UK and in the US, we, we don't have enough protective care gear, for example, for healthcare workers. Um, you know, we, we don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough ventilators. Um, this was not planned for, despite people in public health telling us it was coming for 20, 30 or more years. And um, what were those warning signs? It's, it's coming, it's happening, it's, it, it will happen. I mean, it, it, the, the Bill Gates TED Talk is, is doing the rounds from 2015 as a, as a prophecy of a viral outbreak. But uh, was it SARS? Is it previous... Uh, infections that, that, that indicated that that this, if wasn't mitigated locally, that it would break. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a few things. I mean, every student of public health, every medical student learns about uh, the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. Um, and that was more than 100 years, just actually, just, just a bit more than 100 years ago that that all took place. Um, and, and it's always taught as a warning. You know, this is what can happen when things get totally out of control. Um, but I, I think the, the problem with humans is that our lifespans are far too short. Um, 
and, and that's why history keeps repeating itself. Uh, and that's really the challenge here is that there's nobody really living anymore that remembers the, the flu outbreak of 1918, 1919. They don't remember 50 million people dying worldwide. Um, and so it's very difficult to muster the political will to prepare for something like that. That, that said, recently we had some significant warning signs. You had uh, MERS, you had SARS, right? And fortunately those things, you know, through rapid intervention and, and some, of the, some of the, you know, properties of the diseases themselves, um, they, they were you know, shut down relatively quickly. Um, that's not going to happen here. Um, it, it's already worldwide. Um, and, uh, and so the chances of putting that genie back in the bottle are, are, are basically zero. Um, are you talking there specifically that that the our lifetime and our memory uh, we haven't inherited the wisdom of the past, or are you referring to what seems to be a glitch in our psyche about not investing adequately in the long term as as humans? Um, this this idea that. I don't need to worry about climate change. It's my grandchildren's problem to sort out uh, or that I, I'm just incapable of, of creating the intensity in my mind to change my habits and behaviors today. That means that the future is safer. I think it's really, it, it's all of the above to, to an extent. Um, you know, my, my grandparents were, were children of the depression. Um, you know, my great grandparents came from Italy and, and, and they, they ran a bakery in New York. And so throughout my childhood, my grandparents told these stories about not having enough to eat, uh, about, you know, baking bread and giving it away to the neighborhood, um, you know, and, and things like that. And for me, uh, you know, those stories were such a profound part of my childhood that that very much informs the way I live my life now about, you know, the end of the bread doesn't get thrown away. It gets put in the freezer um, for when I need to make toast or, or something um, because that, that's the way we need to think. So I think there's this generational memory that we're missing uh, about you know, horrors that happened in the past. You know, the stories of our grandparents of depression may very well come to pass if the economic, you know, if the economic things that happen, that may happen, you know, do come to pass with the present crisis. But also, it, you know, it's, it's always someone else's problem. Um, yeah, people get heart disease, but, you know, I, I, I can eat this, this, this giant hamburger twice a week, um, you know, because I'm, I'm busy, I'm running between offices and, and, and this is what I need to eat for lunch. Um, yeah, I'm burning through a lot of gas, but, um, I, you know, I mean, the weather's changing here, but it's not terrible, right? So we, we make these little, um, we excuse ourselves um, in a way that we probably should not. Hmm. So can I pick up on a point that you made there about overwhelming the health systems and services and uh, whether it is COVID infecting a lot of people and therefore a lot of people needing hospital care. Um, but you also, there's an implicit aspect of that, of other health needs. So people will still be going to accident and emergency because they've had an accident. Uh, there'll still be road traffic accidents for whatever reason. Um, so I'm also now thinking about my daily exercise and my my love per, on a personal level this isn't just about me but i <laughs> i think it's quite broad <laughs> but but actually i've got some questions um i like to get out on the bike every day and um sure. and it's it's gorgeous weather in the uk which is unusual 
uh, at the moment. And uh, I'm reluctant to, A, go out on a group ride with my cycling friends. Um, I'm also reluctant to go out on my own on the roads. And that's because I came off in 2013, so seven years ago, but um, it's a memory that I have. And so I'm now thinking about what what is our own individual responsibilities about self-isolating, but also taking care of ourselves so that we are not a burden. Yeah, uh, in the first instance, what I would say is this, is you definitely shouldn't be taking group rides. You know, how many times have you been riding in a tight pack and somebody blows their nose and it gets on you or, or, or whatever else? It's just, it's not safe. Um, and, and the problem is that we, we know so many people are asymptomatic carriers of this disease. Um, and it's not entirely clear who's going to get sick and who's not going to get sick. You know, I've got patients in, in, in the hospital um, who are, you know, in their, in their 20s and, and fit athletes. They're the last person in the world that should be very sick with this, yet they are. Um, you know, doctors, you know, and nurses as well. Um, so it's not clear how this virus, quote unquote, chooses who's going to get terrible disease, whether there's genetic factors or lifestyle factors or, or if it's just a matter of exposure. How much virus were you exposed to? That's one of the reasons we think maybe some of these physicians and nurses are having such a hard time because they've been exposed to so much for so long that they get a much more catastrophic infection. Um, it, it's difficult to know, you know. But so I think, so that, that part of it, you need to be isolated. If you're going to ride, you need to ride alone. Um, but, but also, um, you know, I, I put this out on a tweet the other day and caused a lot of ruckus um, that, you know, if you're going to ride, um, get on a trail or someplace where there aren't any cars and take it easy. Um, your fitness is not going to be what it was. But, you know, if you come off and break a collarbone, the last place you need to be going is an emergency room right now. If you end up in the A&E with some kind of catastrophic trauma and then pick up COVID on top of it, you're going to be a sorry person. Um, so, I, so I think um, we need to be thinking, you know, societally about, you know, not just what's, you know, I mean, it is, it is better for us to not be in the ER with some kind of, uh, you know, trauma. But by the same token, um, you know, if, if I'm there taking care of you with trauma, that means I'm not taking care of the guy who's coming in with respiratory distress. Um, and we just need to marshal our resources in the most effective way possible to save the, the largest number of people we can, I feel. Yeah, okay, so that, that's very clear. Then, so, so specifically group riding. And yeah. uh, I've got to say that uh, go, walking our dog uh, in the mornings, I see people in group rides still, yet the UK government has locked down. And yeah. Uh, I've seen, I've heard reports from friends also of, of mountain bikers thinking almost this is holiday and, and so let's go for it. But, but riding dangerously, which is, yeah. to me, there's a sense of, there's, there's not, there's the, there's the personal care aspect, but it's the broader responsibility to uh, society I'm hearing. Um, I, yeah. I would definitely be in a position where I would be picking up snot and mucus from people because I tend to sit at the back. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just you and me not, both. <laughs> I'm just not. <laughs> I'm just not as fast as the the, the others, and I don't adapt. And uh, as much as I know about physiology, I can't get it to work for myself. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, but the other thing too is, in terms of your training, is that um, most of these viruses, most you know respiratory viruses, including coronaviruses. Um, do affect the heart muscle. 
Um, you know, when you, when you look at the literature, you know, I mean, there's a great study done you know, 20 years ago now on Finnish army recruits who had uh, influenza and showed that roughly 15% of them had cardiac involvement. Now, the reason we don't hear about that very often um, is that, number one, most people don't exercise, so they're not going to necessarily notice a, um, you know, some kind of decrease in cardiac performance right away. And these things sometimes present later in life as, as cardiomyopathies as these people get older. Um, but um, there are plenty of cases reported in literature of young, healthy athletes exercising with some kind of uh, respiratory virus, you know, Coxsackie or something like that, um, or, or GI virus, um, and then turning up in florid heart failure because the virus attacked the heart muscle. Um, and so really, um, you know, one of the other things about training at this point is that it needs to be easy. This is not the time to be going out and smashing intervals. This is not the time for a lot of threshold training. Um, this is a time to, to maintain your health, but to look at it as maintaining your health, not necessarily your performance. That, that's an interesting dynamic. I mean, we, we've, we've just heard the announcement about the Olympics being postponed. And, and yeah. obviously sport is irrelevant right now, but I'm also thinking about that a few months out from a major competition, just recently, we would have had athletes and every um, weekend warrior going that would be pushing their system. Uh, they, yeah. this, this would be a critical, pivotal time in developing the physiological um, upper limit from which they then start to, to taper down and, and um, supercompensate, which means potentially that there's a, there's a risk aspect to that, that they could overcook it, uh, they, they could undercook it, but equally that typically at this time of a season we would, we would see infections, we would see injuries cropping up yes. as people are starting to just uh, push that there. Um, I'm, a, I'm assuming that the advice is stay the right side here, use exercise yeah. as a tool to boost and maintain immune system, not weather it down. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I think we're we're all aware of that. They call it the J-shaped curve, right? If you do no exercise, you're more likely to get sick. If you do some exercise, you're less likely. But if you do a lot of exercise, you become more likely to get sick again. And what we want to do is sit in that middle range someplace. We want to be healthy. We want to be fit. Um, we just don't want to be, uh, we just don't want to be beaten up. Um, we, we, we shouldn't, it shouldn't take days to recover from uh, from workouts. You know, what, I, what I'm telling athletes is that, you know, if you finish a workout and, and you're feeling, you know, kind of beat up or you're dragging around tired legs for a day or two, you're doing too much. You know, you should, you should be able every day just to go out there and do what, do what you want to do um, with no real consequences for the following day. And that's probably a sign you're doing it about right. Mm. Now, how nuanced should we be in terms of um, differentiating what we do based on the symptoms that we're getting? Because I, I'm assuming that the common cold is still infecting a lot of people around the world. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, influenza is still, it's, it's starting to taper down, but it's still out there. And the common cold as well, the rhinoviruses are always around. Um, so yeah, so you, you need to pay very close attention to the way you're feeling. And, it, you know, in the sports medicine business, what we tell people is to do a neck check. And what that means is any symptoms you have below your neck um, means that you can't train period. Um, so if you've got a little bit of a sniffle or something like that, or some allergies or whatever, that's not a big deal. If you have a sore throat, if you have a cough, if you have swollen glands, if you have uh, fevers or chills, if you have muscle aches, those are all signs that you do not belong training. 
You know, your body's busy fighting one thing. It doesn't need to be trying to repair the damage you're doing by training as well. Um, so that's a hard thing to drive through people's heads, um, especially competitive athletes. Um, and there's often, a, there's often an, uh, you know, with myself, you know, in the medical office or just with, 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 their, with their own psyche at home. Oh, I'm really all right. I can train, you know. Uh, this is no big deal. Um, your athletes get to be good by, um, by being tough. And when you're sick, it's not a time to be tough. Um, it's okay to have the man flu and just, uh, you know, lay around and not do anything for a few days until you recover. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so people should be conscious of isolating uh, within reason, getting outdoors to, to get some reasonable exercise, uh, but being responsive to to any subtle symptoms that they've they've got. Any other uh, tips and and advice for people? Nutrition is crucial. Um, you know, a lot of people will be tempted uh, because they're not training as much to reduce their 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 calorie intake, and that's not necessarily unreasonable. Um, you don't need if you're not training like an athlete, you don't need to eat like an athlete. Uh, but that being said. No one should be afraid of putting on a couple of pounds um, because we know that good, good nutrition, in, in particular carbohydrates and, and, and protein, um, you know, can, can help um, you know, with just remaining healthy um, and keeping your body uh, from, from digging itself a hole. You need to be well prepared and strong should you get sick. Hmm. Are we going to see, do you think, in the future that, that, or in the short term, maybe over the next year or so, are we, are we going to see a situation where the general population uh, are going to be re- almost required to adopt new nutrition habits, new healthy habits, uh, thinking about care almost as an alerted risk, um, but but thinking nutritionally, thinking about their health, whereas potentially the, our, our super athletes, our elite athletes, maybe aren't going to be as, as athletic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting the way we stratify risk, right? Um, coronavirus is a new risk. So we're all highly attuned to it and we're all very afraid of it. And we want to try to find a way to not get it. Despite the fact that things like, you know, heart disease and cancer kill way more people every year, you know? Um, and, and I think, and, and those should be the things that we should be attuned to in addition. Um, because... Um, you know, heart disease and, and, and type 2 diabetes are preventable um, and, and to an extent treatable with exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I often tell people that, you know, when they come in, everyone who comes into my medical office leaves with a prescription for exercise because we know that there is no more powerful medicine. You know, if I give you an aspirin, I may reduce your risk of stroke or heart attack by a few percent. If I get you to exercise several times a week, I reduce your risk of death from everything by more than 50% cancer, heart disease, stroke, et cetera. Um, there's no pill I can give you that does that. Mm. And this, the, the, the effects are almost immediate. Within 48 to 72 hours, the risk reduction begins. Um, and, um, you know, moreover, um, you know, these, you, you just feel better. And that risk reduction is not based on weight loss. It doesn't matter if you never lose a pound. It's the activity itself. It's the exercise itself. And what it does to your circulatory system, et cetera, that is protective. Hmm. Is this? Um, I mean, my, in two thousand and three, my my mother 
phoned me. I was overseas and she told me she had type 2 diabetes. And from that moment, I said, right, endurance exercise every other every day. I think every other day at the time. And now it's every day. And yeah. and that's that's something I've committed to for my health. And that was a big driver of thinking, well, that's not going to be me. And so, yeah. so 17 years on, I'm, I'm still uh, sticking to that. But as much as anything, uh, <laughs> slightly, slightly ashamed to admit this, uh, I thought, how can an exercise physiologist uh, <laughs> who knows about this sort of thing <laughs> go down with type 2 diabetes <laughs> because of not actually <laughs> right. not actually doing something about it um uh, just out of that shame um just slight slight uh, tangent question phil how much of a dint of this situation that we're in is that is a dint of the of the growth in the human population and that ultimately we are preserving life all the time um but there's got to be um inexorable consequences to more and more humans on the earth you know um it's a great point you know anyone who's studied any any ecology knows that any environment has a carrying capacity and that when you get too many of an organism in a in a particular place things start dying disease starts to spread etc and i think a question that we really need to think about you know is that you know as we press further and further into areas that were previously not um you know, often visited by humans, right? Um, you, you know, as you, uh, you know, with Ebola, for example, you know, which they thought maybe originated in bats and things uh, in, in, in Africa. Um, you know, as, as you think about, you know, the, the SARS and, and, and these other diseases that are coming out of animal populations and making the leap to humans. Um, you know, that thing was not, that sort of thing um, did not have the consequences in the past that it could have now because we're so much more tightly packed. Right. I mean, the reason why this is burning like wildfire through through New York or through China uh, or through London um, or through Italy is that you have a lot of people living in apartments right on top of each other, easily sharing surfaces, easily sharing the same air. Um, and and so so really, this kind of thing is inevitable once the population grows large enough. I mean, I saw one particularly fatalistic meme floating around on, on, on Twitter saying that, you know, you know, the earth is the organism, the humans are the disease, and, and, and COVID-19 is the cure. And that's a pretty grim way to look at it. Um, but it, that, uh, things like that should make you think for a second. Mm. You know, and how do we need to modify our way of living to try and make these types of outbreaks less, you know, less likely? Right. So COVID is almost like a writing agent. Or, um, okay, that's, that's quite a harsh harsh concept to stomach extremely yeah even if it's a, a byproduct or a, a side effect of, of overpopulation that that's yeah. a consequence um, right give us something positive to think about and, and or <laughs> some views I, I I know it's I, I see two types of news at the moment um, one which is quite you know, just the profound statistics, data, and some sensationalism that goes on with it that disturbs yeah. our sleep, disturbs our our work and our livelihood and our well-being. And then I see, on the other hand, what is 
can only be described as quite delightful, wonderful human connections that are being created virtually, uh, people sharing their experiences, uh, hosting sessions, volunteering, where it's quite it's quite a real humanistic outpouring of connection. Um, yeah. It, and so give us something positive to to fill our minds with, Phil, about what we can, how we can start to think about this in a constructive or healthier way. I mean, a, a lot of Western society, particularly American society, is predicated on the concept of one man against the world, right? Um, in rugged individualism. I'm going to go out west. I'm going to stake my claim. I'm going to build my farm and so on. Um I think what this crisis brings into sharp relief is truly, we are all in this together. And the solution to this problem, and it is a soluble problem, is everyone realizing that they are in this together and that their selfish need for this or that is irrelevant at this point. Um, when you're talking about literally millions of deaths. Because COVID is gonna be indiscriminate, right? It doesn't care who it kills. And so, um, you can pretend that you're young and healthy and you're at less at risk of death, and that's great. But what if the person you infect is your grandmother, who kicks off 10 years younger than she might have? Or one of your friends, um, who has another health problem that they didn't know about? Um, you know, it requires us to think in much, in much broader terms um, about what consequences our... Because the exponential is a powerful multiplier, Right? If I infect one person or three people and those three people infect two each and so on, you've got in no time at all, you have an outbreak. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't had the ability to do that kind of tracing in the United States because I think that has a unique way of bringing it home to people. Um, what are you responsible for? And I think everyone needs to have that sense of not just personal um, independence, whereas, you know, I'm an American, I can behave however I like um, within my rights um, and, and start thinking in terms of I am a member of a giant, unique experiment, uh, you know, unique in the history of the world, uh, of an intelligent species that really conquered the environment. Um, and, and now um, the environment's pushing back. And so how do we as a society adapt to that and understand that each of us has an important place to play, or important uh, part to play in that? Because we can win this. Hmm. Listen, we, the, I'm not sure the year we last actually sat down and spoke face-to-face, uh, -face, Phil. It would have been circa 2007, maybe, 2008. Uh, it was probably when I came to Loughborough, when I was still looking for where I was going to do my PhD. Because I was, I was there meeting with Ron Mon when I came down and saw you and Barry Fudge and, and all those guys, I'm guessing. Um, most likely, yeah, I think that's about when it was. And... We sat down and had a conversation about about uh, the load, uh, training intensity, uh, trying to estimate power from running uh, yeah. dynamics and mechanics and so on. And um, and I remember thinking this is an unusual conversation to have with a doctor uh, right there. And <laughs> hearing about your background in microbiology, in sports medicine, uh, your you're a deep philosophical thinker. You've got a, an amazingly wired up microphone drum kit uh, behind you. Um, you, you. You strike me as someone who's got an avid interest in all walks of life and uh, an extensive background of, of learning and, and insight. Uh, has that always been there, Phil? 
I think I was sort of born with it. Um, you know, my, my grandparents, um, being, you know, the children of immigrants, um, from my earliest life, uh, drove into my head that there was nothing more important than your education. Um, and my parents instilled the same feeling in me. Um, I can remember being as early as kindergarten, relatives asking me where I wanted to go to college, um, which is an absurd thing to ask a child at that age. Um, but it was kind of put into me at that point that the way you bettered yourself was through education and by learning. And it's something that I just, I just came to love. Like there's so much to know. There's so much to learn. Um, there's so much to understand. And I think that kind of curiosity is just really helpful because it allows lateral thinking. You know, um, the, the models that I would develop as part of my PhD um, have their origins in uh, the mathematics and the models used in music uh, to generate echo, to generate reverb, which I know from my uh, background as a musician. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, the way to think about it, for example, if you want to think about how the body responds to training, um, it's just like, uh, you know, you, you clap your hands in a, in a room, okay? The clap is the training uh, the training and the echo you hear is the response of the body or you throw a rock into a pond right the stimulus is the rock in the pond the ripples are the response um and it's this, this, the very same math applies um you know because these things are universal in nature um and so for me i think the joy of learning is finding something in one place that turns out to be very useful someplace else so you, tell tell me more about that then you're you're are you using that as a metaphor, the, the, the mechanics of m music and the load experienced in, uh, in the physiological body? No, or, it, or it, literally? it is literally, yeah, it's, it's precisely the same mathematics. Tell um, us more. Tell me could, more. I won't understand it, but tell me more. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, so if you um, generate some kind of an impulse, you know, um, you, 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 you fire a gun, you smack a drum head, right? Um, so you've disturbed a system and that system, the response of that system is the sound that comes out of it. Okay. And that sound echoes around the room. It bounces off different, the sound waves themselves bounce off different, uh, surfaces, for example. And so some of those waves cancel each other out. Some of them don't. Um, and you know this because if you play a stereo in a room, when you walk around the room, if you walk to a corner, you hear a lot of bass. If you walk elsewhere, the bass will suddenly seem to disappear. Typically, if you stand in the midpoint of the room um, and then you walk elsewhere and it comes back again. Um, it's no different uh, with training. If I train and I produce a stimulus on my physiology, um, there's both a, both a positive and a negative effect of that. You can think of it as a positive sound wave and as a negative sound wave. Um, there are points where one wave, the fatigue wave, for example, may be more impressive and blot out the fitness. And you know that's true because when you train, if you train hard, um, the following day you can't train hard again. You're underwater from the fatigue. But eventually that fatigue wave fades away, revealing the fitness wave that's still hanging around because it lasts longer than the fatigue wave. Does that make good sense? It does. I'm, 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 I'm imagining straight off the, on a superficial level, just the, the stress adaptation uh, curve here that, that yeah. ultimately is a starts with a dip in homeostasis uh, where your body more or less says what on earth did you do that for I'm now damaged but okay well I'm now going to ready myself because if you do that again uh, I'm going to protect myself and so that that's a waveform that you experience yeah, uh, yeah. 
And a way to think of it, that wave you're imagining in your head, the, the wave of supercompensation, is actually the sum of two different waves, right? It's there's the, the fitness, right? The positive effects begin increasing immediately after you stop. Your body starts repairing the damage. It's just that the amount of damage that was done was such that overall you're in a hole. So um so specifically there, for example, there may there may well be different waveforms to recovery. Um, yeah. such as the, the mechanical adaptation you might experience, say, from loading uh, in the bones, uh, sure. in the circulatory system, that'd be a, a metabolic load that would take yeah. time to adjust. Um, Correct. Almost different frequencies. Is that? Yeah. That's one way to think of it. Mm. And, and so to link back, if I, tell me if I'm just going wild here. Um, to link that back to our previous discussion about health and COVID-19. Um, if, for example, you've got something that's dampening, uh, i.e. your immune suppressed because of an illness, um, yeah. if you've got uh, a couple of blankets in your drum <laughs> as a dampener, you're not going to yeah. get the same response. You're not going to get the same frequency back. Exactly. It's going to sound different. And and I'm also now starting to wonder almost is that is that in any way like the butterfly effect, where by a gun going off as you mentioned in the woods we might startle uh, a fox, but that might startle a bird, which might cause a knock a cascade effect uh, down the yeah. line. Um, hmm. yeah, the, you know, part of the problem is that these processes. As smart as we think we are, you know, in figuring them out. I mean, nature has a four billion year head start, you know, um, and we're trying to unravel things that are that are very subtle and not particularly easy to understand or visualize. Um, and, and so, I think part of the problem is that um, humans have a certain level of hubris. We're not nearly as smart as we think we are. Um, you know, I think uh, a good example of that, you know, just you know, one of the reasons I stopped my work in microbiology, for example, back in the 90s, is that, uh, you know, they, they figure out the DNA double helix back in, you know, in Watson and Crick's time. And it takes them, you know, 30, 40 years to be able to rapidly sequence DNA to the point where they can look at large numbers of genes in short periods of time. And that's great. But every, you know, every couple of years, they say, oh, a major genetic uh, cure for disease, this disease or that disease, is just 10 years away. But they've been saying that since the 1970s. <laughs> and we're still not anywhere close. Um, because although we understand in broad strokes how these things you know, work at the level of the cell or at the level of DNA, um, we have almost no way of replicating it um, or being able to intervene meaningful in it, meaningfully in it without causing a, a major disaster. Um, you know, it's very difficult, for example, to take a, a, a say someone has a bad copy of a gene. Um, it's very difficult to take a good copy of that gene and just fly it in there where you want it. Um, it's, 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 it's hugely difficult. Um, and so uh, I, I just think that, you know, as humans, we should have just a little bit of humility and a little bit of respect <laughs> for the amount of you know, engineering Mother Nature has had time to do. Um, and, and just, uh, and not, and not be too, um, 
just not think too highly of ourselves. Mm. And is there any link there to, I guess, the, the, the productivity or the focus of pharmaceutical companies motivated to treat disease as opposed to prevent or to <laughs> do something constructive? Uh, have we missed a trick here as a, as a, as a species in, in the, the, the focus of our attention around human health, preventing stuff? and making money from it as opposed to actually doing something constructive? Well, I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, in society in general, um, we've taken this very materialistic bend, you know, this very very materialistic turn. And we're not particularly concerned um, with the with the spiritual or the, you know, or or or, um, uh, or things that are less tangible, yet yet are equally important, you know, Um, it's it's easy to prove that um, you know that you've been successful because you have money. Um, it is more difficult sh- to show in a real term, in real terms, that you've been successful because uh, you have children who love you, right? Um, that's a, that's not as easy for someone to, as looking looking into your bank account to see how much money you made. And so that's the challenge: is that we have set up a society that that has define success by, uh, by, fi- by in, a, in a financial means. Even though, especially now, money is just numbers in a computer. You know, last week they decided they were gonna throw in America $1.5 trillion at the markets to try and buoy them. Now, no one worked and magically made $1.5 trillion. They added some zeros to a bank account, <laughs> you know, um, and just made it magically happen. Um, and so I think the more we realize that, um, and the more we think about how, because um, in the end of the day, you can't take it with you. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how many billion, how many billions of dollars you have. We're all going to die someday. We all go out, come into this world the same. We all leave the same way. Um, and really, what we ought to be thinking about is how to optimally use and enjoy this very brief time you have in the sun. You know, before you end up buried in the ground and recycled into something else. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, pharmaceutical research, and it, it's all been very based in money and you know, we're going to cure this or that. Um, but really, what we ought to be thinking about is how do we live healthier as humans? You know, we know that stress is a huge factor in cardiovascular disease. How much blood pressure medicine would you or I really need if we weren't, you know, working 18 hours a day? You know, <laughs> um, so, it's, so at some point, I think just all of us need to have a wake up call. And decide what kind of life do you want to live, you know? And could I work less um, and exercise more? You know, could I eat better? Um, could I, um, you know, do with you know, one car instead of two? Um, and, and there's all these things that we could do to make our lives just a little bit more focused on, on you know, uh, on things that are less materialistic and, and less and less focused on how am I going to make a buck out of this? Yeah, well, wise words. Uh, so the the search for contentment or um, or, or well being with purpose in that sense. I think uh, a lot yeah. of people that I talk to, they're not necessarily looking for the well being as we know it from a cliched, hackneyed version of its definition of uh, a nice picture of an apple with a tape measure around it and a back massage because you're stressed. This is about uh, contentment um, being. A, peace and calm 
when you're uh, when you have function and purpose and value to society. Yes, exactly. So this is a, this is a big segue. Tell me, tell me about contentment from the Breaking Two project. Uh, tell me a little bit about huh. your your involvement and uh, and what you learned from from that experience. It, it's interesting, right? Um, I um, a, a few times in my career, um, I've been approached by people who train very very famous athletes. Um, you know, world champion level, um, you know, Olympic level, and ask me uh, to, to sort of uh, to, to consult on their training or, 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 or to tweak this or that. And my response was almost universally no. <laughs> because my argument is, you're already the fastest person there is. And what am I going to do besides screw this up, number one? And, and number two, it doesn't matter if you win by an extra five seconds, <laughs> you know? If you win, you win. That was the point. Um, and so uh, when I was first approached by about breaking two um, uh, by, by, by the fellows at Nike, um, there was a part of me that was a little bit um, uh, hesitant. Like you're talking about people who have already got it figured out. And what more is a knucklehead like me going to gonna offer there? Um, but yeah, it was too interesting a, a, a thing to pass up, right? Um, we're going to be given a blank check to um, help the already fastest people alive, you know, the, the world marathon, the marathon world record holder, or, um, or, or not quite uh, at that time, but uh, uh, and the half marathon world record holder, you know, um, and we're gonna try and make them even faster. Uh, and that's, that's a very unique project. And so, you know, you know sign me up. Um, but I got far more from that project than I gave. Um, and I say that because, um, you know, when I first met Elliot Kipchoge um, out, out, in, out at, at Nike HQ, and we're talking about uh, the project, and uh, and I'm asking him, you know, I said, oh, you know, Elliot, you know, he's still, we're talking about what kind of, um, you know, uh, um, how we might change his, uh, how we might change some of his supplements during during exercise, what kind of, you know, carbohydrate beverage you might use or, or things like that. And I said something about some of Gatorade, you know, or, or one of those, I forget which product I said offhand. And he said, well, where do you think I'm going to get this? I said, Elliot, you're going to go to the supermarket. You're going to buy it. And he started laughing at me. And he said, uh, doctor, you've never been to Africa, have you? <laughs> I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, he said, you're going to come to Africa. And we're going to train together. Then he kind of pauses and he says, well, I'm going to train and you're going to drive in the car. But you're going to see what it's like where I'm from. And I said, Elliot, I've spent my whole life learning about the diseases that are going to kill me in Africa. I'm not going to Africa. <laughs> To which the people at Nike said, check your contract, Skiba, you're going to Africa. Um, but getting up there um, it, to Eldoret, not to Captagat, where these guys live and train, um, I saw a side of the world that I never would have seen. And so all these guys living in this uh, very unique setting in a house together, and all they cared about was eating and sleeping and training, um, paying very close attention to how they felt, um, you know, taking time, uh, you know, to be with their family at times. Um, but truly understanding this idea that it's all for one and one for all. You know, you've heard Elliot in an interview say things like, um, you know, I'm, I'm not even 1% of the team. You know, I'm not capable of 1% of what this team is. Um, they get it um, in a way that I feel Americans in particular and Westerners in general do not. Um, you know, team athletes may get it to an extent. Um, 
but uh, so so for me, um, it was just a sort of a psychic slap in the face to say, you know, this is this is not all about computers and measuring training and devising new math and all that kind of stuff. Well, all that stuff is is the is the icing on the cake, right? Um, maybe not even the icing. It's it's you know, the candles you put on top. Um, the rest of it is this function of humans in a society that are directed towards a common goal. Um, and that's what we ought to take from that, you know. That, that is quite an unusual perspective from an athlete, an individual athlete. Yeah. Where ultimately you have this unremitting focus and tenacity and you're very discerning of who you're going to listen to as a consequence of your, it's on you, it's your responsibility. As you say, the, yeah. you, you might get that in teams where it's quite gestalt. Uh, you, you're, you do start to recognize that it's not just a Maradona team where <laughs> everything just resol- right. revolves around one person. You ultimately have to work together constructively to, do, to overcome your rivals. That's quite unusual. Why do you think that might be the case? Why, what, how has that been nurtured? Is that, is that societal or is that, is that uh, taught? You know, I don't know enough about Kenyan or, or, or Ethiopian uh, society to be able to answer that question really. Um, what I can see is that within this group, it has definitely been fostered. Um, and, uh, you know, part of it comes from the top down in terms of the coaching, for sure. Um, part of the part of it comes from the way they are with each other. Like you spend time with these guys, and you realize that they generally enjoy, like they genuinely enjoy each other's company, um, and, and they're supportive of each other. And they're you know they're, you know they're, they're talking each other up. Um, you know, it's like you know there's this this idea you know particularly in American sports of the uh, of the hard ass coach who's yelling at people and directing and sort of you know acting like some kind of uh, you know Captain Bly or something you know some kind of uh, um, some kind of dictator almost. Um, and that's not what you see when you see these guys. I mean, yeah, the coach has a plan. Um, but it's a very kind of uh, hands-on approach. It's a very kind of, um, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily feel a lot of competition between the athletes. You have the impression that they're interested genuinely in each other's success. Um, and I think that's something we need as a society. You know, I don't, my candle doesn't burn brighter because I blow yours out, right? Um, it, it's, you know, because at the end of the day, if you're better, that's going to push me to be better. Um, there's no fun um, in just being sort of at the top of the mountain. Uh, I, at least to me, there isn't. Um, or, or, you know, or, or put another way, and I forget who it was who originally said it, um, that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Um, you want to be with people who challenge you and you want to be with people who not only challenge you, but, 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 but support you, you know? So it sounds like you took quite an existential learning from, from that experience. I was expecting you to be talking about some of the detail of the, of the project, but actually it's quite, uh, an ethereal lesson that you've, you've taken away from it. I mean, there were very, there were very practical things as well. I mean, there's something unique. And I had this a bit in Exeter as well um, when I was working with Andy Jones and Andy Van Havilo and those guys um, in that um, there's something uniquely satisfying about working with, you know, literally the best in the world at something um, and to be all in the same room together collaborating on that. Um, 
because you realize you are making, um, you know, huge leaps, you know, and, 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 and that you couldn't have made alone, you know, in several of the interviews post-breaking too, you know, I said, this is not a story about Skiba's math or Jones's nutrition and physiology or, uh, or Wilkins, you know, environmental physiology or whatever. This is what was capable together when you put that much brain power in one room and attacked a single problem. Um, and, and that's the way it needs to be. You know, you, you have research groups all over the world constantly trying to scoop each other and gazump each other and whatever. What more could you accomplish if you put all those people in a room together, you know, and said, so we're going to work collaboratively towards this thing. And, and really, but it's the same lesson you learned from the, the guys in Africa. We're all going to work on this thing together. We're all in it together. Let's make it happen. Um, because really, it, it, anything is possible when you do that. Hmm. Love that. Love that. So I'm, I'm hearing, uh, talking each other up, I'm hearing the united behind a common goal, uh, interested in each other's success. I'm hearing those lessons from Breaking too, and I'm <laughs> or just thinking about the conversation we've had about what, <laughs> what we need to commit to as a society to get on top of COVID-19. Look, I mean, our, our grandparents, you know, Yours and mine marched off to, to all over the world to World War II to try and save the world, right? And, you know, how many millions of them lost their lives? Um, we're not being asked to do anything like that. We're being asked to sit in our houses and binge Netflix and maybe get a little exercise once in a while um, and not do anything stupid um, and just let um, – that, that, that's, and that's, that's a meaningful – that's a meaningful uh, – you know, input to this fight that makes you a soldier in this fight. Um, and that's an, that's a pretty nice place to be that you can fight this war from your couch, you know? Um, and, and for those of us who are out there, we appreciate it because when I don't have one extra person to see in the office, you know, that's one less disaster I'm going to try to manage. Um, or, you know, when I, you know, cause we're, we're all eventually going to be in the hospitals as, as, as the, as, as people get sick. Um, you know, and if there's, if there's one less person I'm putting on a ventilator next week, um, that's a meaningful success. And you'll never know it. I'll never know it. The, you know, the, the person who didn't get somebody sick is never going to know that they're the one that saved somebody's life. But by sitting on your couch, you're saving people's lives. Hmm. All right. Fantastic. Well, look, keep fighting the good fight, Phil. And I really appreciate the time that you've you've given me to to give some some sage advice to, to people, the simple things that they can do, the subtleties of, of staying healthy. And uh, what, what next for you, Phil? What next? That's a great question. Um, currently here, uh, I'm the director of sports medicine for Advocate Medical Group, uh, which covers, I mean, I think 20 hospitals at this point and, uh, you know, and several thousand doctors and, and millions of patients. Um, but we, we're currently, um, I, run the, I run the Human Performance Lab, um, but we're opening up two um, new physiology and uh, gate laboratories with uh, 10 camera Vicon systems and, um, uh, and, and force plates and things like that. So we're going to be able to do some really interesting work in Chicago, actually, uh, with disabled athletes um, and, uh, uh, and getting people back to sport after catastrophic injury, wounded warriors or um, you know, people who've uh, had automobile trauma or things like that. Um, so I'm really excited to get back to that project because that lab was supposed to open literally in two weeks <laughs> and instead we're going to war. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, hopefully when this is all over, we can get back to that work. Uh, sound, sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see the productivity of the work. So thank you so much for joining us, Phil. Thanks for having me, Steve. It was a pleasure. 
You can follow Phil on Twitter at Dr. Philip Skeber. You can also check out his website, fizzfarm.com. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. Check out our Supporting Champions page on LinkedIn. And you can subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Music.